Hello, and welcome to the Sunapal New Wave. I'm Duran, and I'm joined by Professors Rismini, Federici, and um, Arsenyuk from the University of Maryland. And today we are doing a podcast episode on Cinema Retrovato um, at uh, the University of Maryland, uh, um, the Italian Film Program, and the Program for Cinema Media Studies ho uh, hosted a one-day film festival at the old Greenbelt Theater last Friday to um, promote Cinema Retrovato, and they screened um, two Italian films, one called Love Everlasting, which I cannot pronounce the Italian version of the na name at all, um, and also Antonio uh, uh, Di's La Notte. Um, and this was, of course, organized by um, Valeria Federici, and um, she's, she's here joining us. So um, first of all, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you, um, how did your um, relationship with the um, Cineteca de uh, Bologna start, and um, um, how is it like organizing this this first festival? Yeah, um, thank you so much. So for, first and foremost, thank you for, uh, so much for having us um, as guests of, of your uh, podcast uh, to talk about Il Cinema Ritrovato. And um, so um, I my relationship with uh, the Cineteca di Bologna started when I was a grad student uh, because I work uh, for this uh, similar event um, for three years and uh, organizing and helping my advisor at the time um, putting together the, um, the festival. Um, the difference between what I did back then and, and what I did this year for the Italian program and the Cinema and Media Studies program at UMD um, is that we decided to go with the one day um, event instead of the four day event that I was um, more used to. Um, so the reasons are many, but um, of course the, the, the main one being COVID, which was like a, a big question mark still when we started last semester. So we started to plan this in September and um, uh, I started my position at UMD uh, in late August. So I'm new to the department. And this was one thing that we thought could, we could bring um, um, to, the, to the UMD. And so I started to work on this like right away, uh, but COVID back then was still like a big question mark. So we didn't know if we were actually gonna be able to do this in person. So we started really small because we wanted to bring it to the students and the uh, broader community of um, UMD and beyond. And that's why we also like um, reach out to the old Greenbelt Theater. Um, but we didn't know really what was going, what was going on if we were gonna be um, able to do it in person. So we, we started small and we, we decided to present two movies and to give really like a sense of what the full length uh, festival will be, because that's what really aiming for, we're aiming for a four, a four day festival um, to be held in, in spring 2023. So this was and kind so of like a, like a test run for the future festivals? It was a, it was a little bit a test run to see, uh, first of all, what it would entail um, to do this at UMD, what kind of partnership we could build. Uh, we, within uh, the college and outside, and um, what type of interest was out there uh, for this type of event. And so um, the, the, all these elements, including COVID, <laughs> were there. 
And uh, so we thought that um, a one-day event was um, was the right thing to do, the right move for for this semester. Um, so yeah, I don't know if um, either Mara or Luca want to add anything to that, and if you have other questions. Yeah, I mean, as far as the the choice of films um, went. Um, so the idea was to, as Valeria said, was to kind of like give kind of like a little bit of a taste of what Cinema Ritrovat is like, what the experience is like in, uh, in Bologna. The festival takes place in July, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in Bologna, in and around the city. They have like a huge screen outdoor in Piazza Maggiore, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it's kind of like a huge um, kind of like city event. Um, and one of the distinctive features of Cinema Ritrovat is the blending of um, you know, uh, samples of different kinds of cinema from different eras, basically. And so what we wanted to do is kind of like replicate that on a smaller scale um, for our teaser test run event uh, this past Friday, uh, having basically one silent film and one sound film, right? So uh, uh, Love Everlasting, uh, Malamor Mio Non Muore, 1913, the silent one, and then La Notte uh, by Antonioni, 1962. So this was kind of like the idea with Kind of like the format and this is also why we wanted to have two movies basically two screenings kind of like back to back right um again the idea being that you know it's not only you know it's not simply the idea of like going to the movies watching a film and then going home but kind of like staying there like being there you know uh, spending some time talking about movies and kind of like enjoying the atmosphere while you're waiting for the next screening to start which is one of the distinctive features in my experience at least of like being at a festival uh, in a way and the idea is to do that on a larger scale um, in uh, uh, in spring 2023 okay great um, so the two the two films that that, that you guys picked um, was a very interesting combo um, I remember at first when I saw uh, the announcement uh, I didn't really see the connection between the two um, but as you mentioned, um, it now kind of makes more sense as this kind of um, sampler for one of, for the greater festival, since um, as I'm, I'm sure that many of the other um, Cinema Retrovato festivals kind of cover a um, very um, large variety of um, of Italian films from um, from many different time periods. So um, yeah, definitely an interesting one. Um, um, yeah, so I had, I had some questions about um, the first film that was screened, Love Everlasting. So um, I'm assuming that this was a uh, recently restored film. And um, um, can, can we get some of the um, maybe like historical context behind the production of this movie or, or movies from this, this period? Yeah, I mean, um, Love Everlasting is kind of like, uh, we talked about that during the event. Um, during the round table, um, which is also something that we would like to bring back for future events, kind of like having both screenings, round tables, interviews, uh, Q A's with the, with the audience. So a kind of like a more well-rounded uh, uh, event organization in a way. But during the round table, it, it kind of like this question came up. So this idea, you know, why, where does this kind of like uh, mode of filmmaking comes from? Um, and um, what is the context in which it, it kind of like comes into existence? So we're talking uh, 1913, uh, cinema is still a pretty, it's, it's, a, it's a young uh, art, kind of like finding its own artistic footing uh, in a way, experimenting with a number of things. Um, uh, but in, in Italy had a pretty kind of like um, um, 
successful and, and fertile uh, film industry at, at the time. And Malamor Mio No More, uh, Love Everlasting, is one of the kind of like most famous, uh, I would say, silent films uh, of, the, of the era. The other one, uh, which is a, also a melodrama, it's Assunta Spina, um, which was so it's also a very interesting object. Uh, it was uh, kind of like shadow directed by the, the diva, so the, the movie star who f- was featured in it, Francesca Bertini. Um, and it shares some traits with uh, uh, Malamor Mio No More, right? Uh, both films have the, are, are kind of like conceived to be uh, star vehicles, basically. Uh, so they're called uh, diva movies or diva films, right? So uh, this specific one, Love Everlasting, was the first appearance on the, on the big screen uh, of um, uh, Lida Borelli, so the, the, the star uh, of the film who plays uh, Elsa uh, in, in the movie. And uh, she, came, she comes from theater. Um, you can tell, uh, I think, in some of her mannerisms, uh, the, way, the, the way she controls uh, her body, expresses emotions, not only through her facial, her facial expressions, but also the movement of her uh, arms, her back, uh, her head, um, and also dance. Uh, some of the kind of like uh, um, the, the way in which feelings and affects are conveyed through uh, the film, because precisely of the lack of sound and lack of dialogue, um, uh, happens precisely through this kind of like dance-like mannerisms in a way. So much so that Borelli herself kind of like coined, was, was the, the source of the term uh, Borellism, Borellismo, um, which is precisely a way of kind of like acting uh, for the big screen, right? In this kind of like very emphatic, dramatic uh, way. And she strikes all these kind of like different poses throughout the film. Uh, to kind of like signal, you know, dismay, disappointment, uh, anxiety, anguish, uh, terror, uh, 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 sadness, desperation, and so forth. Right uh, to the point where, in some of the and um, some of the, the the publicity for the film, uh, not only in Italy but also abroad, uh, one of the things that were highlighted are precisely the, the poses that she would strike throughout the film. Right, so you want to go there to see her kind of like perform herself in a way. So it's not so much, you know, going there to see uh, uh, to see uh, Lida Borelli as Elsa, but uh, much more to see Elsa as Lida Borelli. Um, so she's kind of like, and this is, this is where the concept of the star, in a way, kind of like begins to uh, form itself, to kind mm-hmm. of like take shape, uh, uh, in a way. We kind of map that map uh, on one of the previous Cinema Ritrovato I work. Uh, we mocked them up the striking a pose thing and. Um, we made we made a booth outside of the theater, and you had to strike a pose. And because we were we were screening Asunta Spina, and um, so we were like, you had to do that thing that you had to strike a pose, like in nineteen ten uh, movie diva. Um, and I would I would say that I mean it's certainly true that the, I mean I guess another reference for the for the film would be the opera. I mean it's very operatic, and the soundtrack that. Um, the Cineteca di Bologna uh, used uh, for the film, which included many uh, recordings of uh, opera, operatic arias um, from the period, roughly, I guess, uh, the period when the film itself was made. So it was, you know, uh, records with the noises and uh, um, um, the kind of uh, uh, sound of operatic singing embedded in the kind of noise of the recording medium uh, itself, which gave it a particular kind of uh, gave gave the screening a particular kind of feeling. 
But I have to say that another thing that I found quite striking, aside from the kind of obvious operatic theatrical poses, was certain moments within the film uh, when the film registered certain smaller gestures uh, that were the opposite, that were in the kind of big theatrical expressive uh, poses and movements, but uh, seemingly mundane, everyday things. There's one scene in which uh, she sort of, uh, it begins by her riding uh, on a horse to uh, the church and she's holding, I think, a horse whip, I think is what you call it. And as she gets off the horse and goes into the church, uh, she plays with that horse whip. Uh, she puts it behind her back. And so, and it's the opposite of this kind of great theatrical uh, gesture. It's a smaller, minor part of the film. But I found interesting there the sort of the beginning of the development of you know, non-theatrical cinematic mode of acting uh, as well that, that, that the film is, uh, to me, interesting for, alongside with trying to invent other cinematic moves and techniques, which, as, as Mauro put it, were, in a way, at that point, 1913, in the process of being uh, invented. So it's a very curious, very interesting film um, um, in that way as well, I think. Yeah, on that, on that note, Luca, um, when... Um during the round table you mentioned how um it was interesting seeing like um forms of uh like visual expression cinematic visual expression being kind of invented during this time and figured out in this movie um yeah. what struck me most about the movie was how like you said like a lot of it was very theatrical in fact there's some very grueling um one takes that seem to go on forever like like you're just watching watching a play with zero editing and I'm, I'm begging for some editing but then oddly enough there is some i mean pretty advanced for the time period techniques too like i think there's a couple of cut-ins um we get some like medium close-ups uh, i remember there's one near the beginning um with uh, the two characters all playing the piano there's it's cut into like a medium close-up there um and there's some really beautiful mo um, moments of camera movement when they happen like when um, the main character gets exiled and you see this beautiful slow pan to the um, Italian countryside as well. So at least watching the movie, I was, I was a little confused since on the one hand you have, you know, it's very theatrical, kind of boring, kind of mundane um, aspects to the film, but you also have these um, uh, cinematic techniques like being invented. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, it does in some way uh, fit within the, I guess it would be a kind of category of film d'art, which was this kind of early um, uh, film theater type of uh, uh, genre um, in early silent film, where you, you know, characterized by a kind of fixed camera viewpoint, as though you were looking at a stage in a theater. Although even there, the film does very interesting things with the depth of field. I mean, uh, completely different than uh, what you would get later, you know, only a few years later on in kind of classical Hollywood uh, style of filmmaking. Uh, so even when it is in that kind of fixed, uh, you know, uh, point of view filming actions take place on the stage as though we were watching a, a kind of theatrical play, um, even there, there's something interesting happening. But there is other moments, like when he puts the camera on a boat that's moving, 
or like that panning shot that you uh, uh, mentioned when she's uh, when she's exiled, um, or the use of mirrors uh, or one big mirror uh, in her wardrobe, where you know he produces certain shots, for certain moments which can only really be produced in cinema, uh, and they cannot be reproduced. Uh, and you know where the film sort of departs from being filmed theater, filmed dance, filmed opera. Um, that you know are striking to observe precisely because as you watch you know that in a way those things are being invented uh, by a film you know by you know and by other films like uh, love everlasting you know in the 19 teens um. can i ask can i add a couple of things um one was just um about the about the music about the soundtrack which was added it was a request from the Cineteca of Bologna. Um, it was a, they commissioned the soundtrack for the restoration of the movie. And um, so it's something that has been commissioned um, only a few years ago <clears throat> when the restoration started. And the, um, <clears throat> the extracts are selected between music, existing music from 1913 to 1961. So it's like a long length of time um, so some is from the time, from the era of Malamur Mio No More, but some other things are much later. Um, and another thing that I wanted to add is um, when you say that, you know, some of these things are very advanced for the time, it is and it isn't true um, in, in terms of, um, I think it is important to consider that uh, by the time that cinema goes into these things, um, photography is more than 50 years old and there's been like so much experimenting. It's the time of the avant-garde. So paintings are like uh, strikingly um, off-centered and dismantled as a tradition at this time. And, uh, and also landscape as a tradition has gone through a long century of exploration of all possible viewer presenting it. And also there is something that it happened, uh, especially at the, um, towards the half of the 19th century, uh, which are the moving panoramas, uh, which are these things that go around the world and, and you know, they travel uh, from town to town and they bring kind of like an archaic way of doing moving. Uh, images because they have a cracking system and there's a, somebody like moving a roll, a longer roll, like from one side to another, which gives you the effect of like a moving sliding show, um, a slideshow. So, so th there is, you know, there are things that, as Luca like rightly say, you can only make with the moving image and like the take on the boats, they're absolutely extraordinary. Um, but there is something that is in the making visually for that to happen, and it has been in the making for, for quite some time. Um, so. One thing that I will also add, kind of like going back to what Duran was saying, you know, the one example of the, the cut in that he mentioned is one that happens in the beginning. And the, the kind of like opening, uh, well, not the opening scene, the opening scene is a, is a cafe, right? Where the, the spy kind of like gets his, his orders. But then there's the kind of like the introduction of the diva, which in and of itself is already pretty interesting because uh, she appears, but you can't quite see her. I mean, she's not like front and center. She moves around. So there's no sense of like, you know, everything stopping for the introduction of the diva to come in, which is something that, for instance, will happen later on in classical Hollywood cinema, right? With the flu, the close-ups and so forth. 
Um, and so there's that on one hand, which is also interesting echoed in La Notte as well. You know, Monica Vitti as the diva appears for the first time in kind of like a, in depth of field. And we see her basically uh, almost through the eyes of uh, uh, Jean Moreau, right? So at the bottom of the stairs, right? So it takes her time. Like Antonio takes his time to introduce kind of like this disrupting element in the narrative, which is the, the young the daughter of the industrialist. Um, but in the in the in the scene, kind of like the the, the kind of like living room scene in uh, in uh, uh, Love Everlasting, you also have this kind of like really interesting cinematic moment, which is when the two are, uh, which is the second half of what Duran was saying, right? I mean, you have the two kind of like the spy and uh, and Elsa, uh, the daughter of the general, um, at the piano, and then you have a cut in kind of like to the um, the the father of Elsa and another general. Kind of like laying out the plans of defense for the Wallenstein, um, um, whatever realm or duchy or whatever the name is, right? And that scene is kind of interesting because even the light there is very different, right? It's very dark, and you have this kind of like glistening uh, light from the lamp uh, on the kind of like coveted object, which are the defense plans that then the spy would go on and and, and take, right? And so. It's kind of interesting that the you know the 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 focus of the scene kind of like shifts from the two uh, the the two young people the Elsa and the spy at the piano to the two generals which are really the the focus the narrative focus of the scene uh, uh, kind of like at the table laying out the defense plans and then you have kind of like an interesting moment of echo in the film um, which is the moment when she's playing again in the church with the with Maximilian the the prince. Uh, and that is a moment that is not interrupted by, you know, the, the kind of like distractions or, you know, uh, 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 other plans or kind of like, you know, betrayal or anything like that. So that is a moment of like, you know, the beginning of what seems to be the possibility at least of true love. So this kind of like, you know, the, there's this kind of like uh, parallels even in the mise-en-scene, um, you know, still kind of like tentative to some extent, uh, haphazard, um, but they kind of like contribute to produce a certain kind of like coherence and kind of like a sense of an organic development uh, in the way in which the film produces meaning, right? Yeah, that's um, that's certainly very interesting. Um, um, shall we uh, move on to uh, Lanate, perhaps? Um, because actually, one of the things that um, I want to touch a little bit more on Lanate, since we didn't really have a chance during um, the uh, the screening, since the um, uh, the roundtable was the middle of the two films, um, so yeah, um, I first of all I'd like to ask, um, of course, Monica Vitti, rest in peace, um, had an incredible career, um, some of the, the greatest films ever made. Um, why why choose uh, La Notte to be the film to remember her by? I mean, it, it is it is a it was a question of also what is available and what was available. Um, so the way in which cinema Ritrato works and and Valera can certainly speak to that more better than I can, um, is that they have kind of like a pretty extensive archive of films, and you can kind of like pick and choose the ones that you want to feature for your on tour uh, version of it. Um, and so we figure that you know La Notte was a, a good option. I mean, really. Uh, any of the four films that Antonioni made with uh, Vitti would have been great. You know, the three uh, uh, kind of like uh, installments of the trilogy of Alienation, but also Red Desert, for instance, would have been good. Um, 
but yeah, we decided to go with Lanotte. I think it's kind of like interesting also because there's this kind of like dualism between the two divas, like one Italian, the other one French, and really with a kind of like European standing at that moment, like Jean Moreau, like extremely recognizable at that moment in her career. Um, and also, yeah, just the, the sheer star power of the of the cast in a way, uh, with Mastroianni as well, and the way in which the uh, the film itself is set up as a sort of like melodrama to some extent. I mean, it is the story of a kind of like a dying love uh, in a way, um, but it's also organized formally in such a way that the affects kind of like take or the affects expressed directly by the actors and actresses through acting. Um, takes kind of like, a, um, a, you know, is, is, is made less important than the world around them in a way. So the architecture, the way in which space is organized, and also specifically the way in which space is organized by uh, Antonioni's eye, right? So the framing, um, in a way, the story of this dying love is told more by uh, the objects and buildings and spaces that surround and imprison the characters than by the acting of the characters themselves to some extent, which is kind of like, a th I think, an interesting contrast with, to uh, uh, Love Everlasting uh, in a way. So this was kind of like the, um, kind of like, you know, what we had in mind when we pick, when we pick La Notte in that sense, beyond, of course, you know, the homage to, uh, to Vitti. Yeah, I think I want to say a couple of things about, um... Um, just to echo what Mauro says, um, said about um, availability, it, it's um, of films, um, it's something that you have to, um, to consider also the fact that um, some of the films are restored in Bologna doesn't necessarily mean that they have the rights to be screened in the United States. So um, the, there are a lot of things to consider. Um, again, it's like a, along with all the possible variables that are out there um, in making an event like this, you also have to um, really see what is out there, um, what kind of screening you're doing. If this is a free screening, it's this where in terms of theater and, and territory. So there, is, there, there, there are a lot of things to consider. Um, La Notte, uh, like uh, Malamor Mio Non Muore, as you said before, as we have been saying since the beginning, are two Italian movies. And for the first installment of Il Cinema Ritrovato, we wanted to have two Italian movies because it's something that, um, to kind of uh, make the point that the partnership is um, with the Cineteca of Bologna, uh, which is an Italian film archive and, and a restoration lab. Um, and, um, and also we kind of wanted to say, you know, this is, uh, we as Italian program wanted to do, uh, but we also wanted to open up this to all possible partnerships and extend it to, uh, the rest of the school of languages, literatures and cultures and, and the rest of the UNB community. So it, it was really just to say like, we started this, but we hope that this is going to be about world cinema and not about Italian cinema. So, I, I, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think this opens up on, what Valeria just said, opens up on questions of restoration, world cinema, film heritage, and we can discuss that. But if we wanted to sort of still stick with a little bit with La Nota, I was thinking after the festival, the kind of combination of the two films, the more I was thinking about, it, the more it sort of struck me as really, um, um, fortuitous in some sense, because you can kind of also 
they're both films about love and they're 50 years apart and you can sort of you know think about what happened to the idea of love in those 50 years uh, from the beginning of the 20th century to the uh, early 60s you know and uh, I think it was Antonioni's statement in uh, at the Cannes Festival when he was presenting uh, La Ventura if I'm not mistaken where he makes this famous statement about the kind of crisis of modern humanity um, in the face of you know modern technology and science but still stuck with sort of old morality uh, without you know having evolved a certain uh, uh, new uh, ethical conception uh, of itself and he has these famous lines where he says uh, Eris is uh, sick uh, and the man is uneasy uh, so love and specifically erotic love is in a kind of crisis um, and you can really see that play out in La Nota where you have these characters who can't recognize themselves in um, being in love anymore in a certain way I mean it's not that it's not it's not that they're suffering from love, it's that love itself is sick and kind of unable to capture them uh, anymore. Whereas in the case of, you know, the, 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 the love everlasting, I mean, people might be sick and the protagonist maybe, you know, dies, but she dies precisely because love is healthy, because it can be eternal in a certain way. So I, I, I found that the, 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 the choice of the two films sort of made a, a nice sort of little diptych um, in terms of like the history of the idea of love in the in sort of 20th century Europe uh, in that sense from, you know, something like a kind of great romantic idea, which has the capacity to overpower individual because of its sort of health, even though it may cause individuals to die for love to a world in Antonioni in which nobody's going to die because of love. I mean, they might just die and he's, you know, one of the friends of the couple dies. I mean, I think, you know, we begin very early on, we are, we are, we're, we're, we, we are in a hospital where a man, a friend is dying, but nobody in that world is going to die for love anymore. Uh, it's because love itself is sick. So there's a nice, I think there was a kind of programming, uh, curating idea I think there too uh, about sort of the two films allowing us to trace a certain kind of crisis of the very idea of love. I, um, I'll, I'll certainly take all the credit for that. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Yes. Well, <laughs> well planned. Well <laughs> thank planned you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just to add on what Lucas said, which I think is, uh, is exactly right. I think it's also interesting to kind of like situate a little bit uh, the two films historically in relation to waves of industrialization in Italy and the way in which the, the environment, uh, okay, yes, yeah, and the way in which the environment around them changes uh, precisely based on industrial and historical progress in a way. So in Love Everlasting, Italy has just gone through its first industrialization phase in a way, which doesn't seem to have uh, kind of like transformed too much the perception uh, of love and like, you know, um, and human relationships and what constitutes the human even in a way uh, in art at that moment. Um, whereas in Antonioni, uh, 62, we're at basically right in the middle of the uh, economic miracle. So this is a moment of like, you know, massive, radical, even brutal, some would say, Pasolini some certainly would say that, uh, wave of industrialization and modernization of the country which has the, as an enormous impact on uh, Italian society. 
And Antonioni, in a way, is the one who I think pushed it the most uh, in terms of like trying to figure out what that does to uh, the human, the concept of the human, and then to human affects and you know human emotions and even love as precisely one of the forms of the relationships between human beings, in a way. Um, and in a way, like in Antonioni, in La Notte, it's, it is not a chance that it's set in Milan, for instance, which was kind of like really the pulsating heart of the modernization of the country. And it's also not by chance that in the very first shot of the film, you see the uh, the old and the new juxtaposed to one another. So you, you see like a, an old Milanese building, uh, probably from the 18th century. And then you see, uh, you know, the Pirellone, which is the Pirelli skyscraper, the first and biggest skyscraper in Italy at the time, really the symbol of modernization. Pirelli itself being an industry uh, connected to rubber, to the production of uh, oil, uh, and so forth. So um, in that sense, you know, as Luca was saying, like, it's really kind of like a pretty um, dispassion diagnosis of the, the situation of feelings and love uh, in a country that's being, it's being modernized um, um, at, at light speed uh, at that point. Yeah, it's interesting, just uh, again, if I can add something to that, um, to give a little bit of historical context to uh, Malla Mormio Non Muore. Um, in 1913, Italy has come out of this big celebration of the first 50 years of the new kingdom of Italy. So they just got reunited and they did like they spent an, a tremendous amount of money <laughs> to make this uh, 50 years celebration of 1911 that went throughout uh, former and current uh, capital of the state. So namely Turin, Florence, Rome. Um, but the country is still, um, you know, uh, kind of like tailing um, the rest of Europe. It's not as industrialized as the rest of Europe, it's not as rich as the rest of Europe. Yes, it's a united, it's achieved the long time goal um, of being united under one uh, king at the time, but it's way far from being uh, um, um, at, the, at the level, let's say, in industrial, uh, on, from, from an industrial point of view of the rest of Europe, um, not to mention England, of course, that at the time is the locomotive um, of, the, of the continent. Um, uh, whereas La Notte, the country is a completely different one. So from, from Malamor Mio Muore to La Notte, other 50 years, like an additional half century went by and the country now is like completely turned upside down. The, uh, you know, the, the migration that took place on the first part of those first 50 years, which were all from Italy to other countries, actually during when La Notte takes place, most of the people from Italy migrate from the, from the Southern regions to the Northern region, because as Mauro mentioned, that's where the pounding engines of the uh, boom, economic boom um, are. So the, the movies are somehow connected also uh, from these from these like uh, red line of history. Um, you know, that, that um, delivers a very different picture of, of the country within a 50 year time. What, what's also interesting to kind of like going off of what Valeria just said is that in a way the film itself registers this kind of like passage. 
because it's not only I mean it's not only the first scene like the first shot that we see, but also in a way that in, in a way that I think it's even more uh, uh, self-evident is later on when uh, Jean Moreau's character kind of like wanders through Milan, then takes a, a taxi and and basically finds herself in Sesto San Giovanni, which is uh, a town, pretty big town, uh, at the outskirts of Milan, which was really the industrial center of the area, right? And you can see Breda, for instance, uh, she mentions it, there's a couple of signs, and Breda was like a, a huge uh, factory um, uh, situated precisely in Sesto San Giovanni. Um, and it's interesting that precisely in that moment, that whole sequence when she's kind of like walking around and seeing all these remnants of a Milan that doesn't exist anymore. So uh, for instance, kind of like a, um, houses, um, uh, for instance, or also uh, even like the, the, the two gangs of kids, they're kind of like beating each other up, seems to be like um, decades away from whatever is happening in, this, the, in downtown Milan, right? With the, the posh, uh, you know, literary parties and, and so forth. I mean, these are the, the two gangs of kids are characters you could see in a, in a Pasolini movie, for instance, you know, in, in Rome in the 60s, for instance. Um, and so, you know, Antonioni registers this kind of like shift, but he does it through the eyes of both Moreau and Mastroianni. Moreau seems to be the one who's a little more nostalgic about it, right? I mean, she's, she's attracted to that place. She goes there, she's fascinated. She's, I mean, she's presented throughout the film as a kind of like a spectator. And so she's a spectator of the, of the fight. She's a spectator of the kids playing with rockets. Um, and she seems to be kind of like revitalized in some way, you know, by the, the just, just being there. And it's hinted at the fact by the film that that is the place where young uh, Mastroianni and Moreau, the two characters, um, uh, fell in love or spent time together, right? Yeah, I was just about so, to mention that how um, there seems to be this kind of like uh, loss that she's trying yeah. to like recapture from, from yeah and, and and mastroianni once he gets there uh giovanni once he gets there he has no no time for nostalgia the only thing he says is like oh you know this this railway used to work when we when we used to come here and that's it it's kind of like an offhand remark and you know he seems completely detached from that older world of milan which was like you know it's not not as industrialized the peasant world um that seems to be kind of like disappearing uh, in a way absorbed by the expansion of a modernizing city in a way. Again, a very Pasolinian motif. But also Moreau, sorry, just a, one thing that I noticed about her character, she's the only one that is not like so self-centered, egocentric maniac in the movie. And she just like, um, uh, she's the one that really suffers from the loss of the friend. She's the only one that reminds us at one point at the movie that the movie started with somebody that was dying and she was really uh, touched by that and she was moved by the fact that she lost this potential lover or like, uh, and friend. Whereas Mastroianni, who is uh, Giovanni, the character, who seemed to be like the true friend, right? The one that like, uh, they had like, they have an intellectual relationship. They talk about their books and then stuff like that. And then the death of his friend, it just goes by like nothing happened. And, and that's kind of uh, shocking. And what we were saying before, what Luca was saying before that like feelings don't seem to be so like striking right, anymore. Like it doesn't seem to be like something and that it's gonna affect us. Uh, as as dramatically as it used to, probably, in a naive way, perhaps, but still, they're not 
they're no longer there. Yeah, like uh, Mastroianni's character seems to just be completely unable to understand what Genmaro's character is going through through the movie. Um, until maybe the very end where it's, um, she kind of hints at the fact that she no longer really loves him. She doesn't really have much connection left to the world at all. Whereas instead of like um, Mastroianni's character kind of coming to terms with it, he instead tries to create this like artificial, like large romantic gesture to kind of recapture what um, they once had. But it's just, it's this kind of this gesture that's completely out of place, um, out of time. It, it's uh, it's meaningless. It's only like manneristic, which is kind of why like I think the the final shot of the movie is like so horrible to me, like very, very, very disturbing when, when you have Mastroianni um, laying on top of Jean Moreau and then eventually the camera um, slowly pans away um, into the grass. And it seems, I mean, it seems important to add that, or to specify that Mastriani's character is a writer, he's an intellectual, so he belongs to a particular, maybe it's, maybe it's not a class proper, but certainly a kind of distinct social group. Um, and Antonioni is making obviously a certain kind of comment about the, the position specifically of intellectuals uh, in that particular moment and their ability to sort of um, recognize or you know um, become adequate to what the situation uh, uh, demands uh, exactly or what, what it would demand of them you know? right because it's mentioned i think offhandedly that um Mastrani's character is a marxist right and yet there's nothing in the film besides that one offhand comment to suggest that i mean you know he's just philandering with with everyone else around uh, his, his class it seems like Right, it's a, it's it's a it's a comment that's almost like a joke or a kind of a question or a statement somebody makes to another person at the party that says, you know, I, I, I believe he calls himself a Marxist. So mm -hmm. it's not even a kind of positive statement that he is a Marxist or anything like that. It's just that, you know, it, it's the suggestion probably being that even if he were to identify himself as a Marxist, it's kind of unclear what that means at that point for an intellectual uh, to say, but and that's something that probably Mauro and Valeria would have would, 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 would be able to say uh, more about, but you're right, that in a way he's a kind of free-floating, um, he's a kind of free-floating free character, it seems to me, but, but also a free-floating character who in crucial moments um, um, still seems to be really attached to things of the past. Mm -hmm. either his relationship to Moreau or he wants some kind of, you know, he enters into a discussion with the industrialist to come work for him as some kind of cultural uh, programmer at the factory or something like that. He wants his place in society, whereas Jean Moreau, his wife, is a wanderer. I mean, he's, she's like a character straight up out of, you know, uh, Gilles Deleuze's ideas about post-war European cinema, where he says, you know, that uh, uh, people and characters in European post-war movies become sort of dislodged from their schemas of action and begin to wander, go on a voyage and encounter situations which are too much for them and that don't lead them to any kind of action or reaction. And she seems to be that kind of unmoored character who kind of wanders around, as Mara was saying, the, the suburbs of the city. But she also wanders the party in the same way as she wanders the suburbs of the city, encountering these things uh, and just registering them. 
and 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 you know without sort of reacting to them in 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 some kind of recognizable way. Whereas he, as an intellectual, I think he still sees himself as a man of action, and clings to that kind of model, whatever it be, whether action as a lover, a husband, or as an intellectual who you know was going to go work for an industrialist or something like that. Um, and that seems to be a kind of key difference between between the two of them, as as far as I can tell. Yeah. One thing that one thing that I I think it's important to add here to what Luca just said is the fact that it, it's true. I mean, this question of wandering is is one of the defining traits, right, of uh, post-war cinema, starting with neorealism and then into the the new waves. Um, but it's also a matter of like the encounters that happen and the nature of the encounters that happen, right? And in a way like La Notte, as opposed to Love Everlasting, for instance, is entirely a chronicle of missed encounters, basically. Um, it's true that Moreau kind of like is, is trying to find a real, a true encounter, but then every time she either runs away, for instance, when she stops, breaks, breaks up the fight and then she's pursued by the, the kid and she kind of like runs away to the, to the taxi cab, um, or uh, when, even when Mastroianni meets uh, Vitti. I mean, that's supposed to be like in, in, in a more classical setup that it's supposed to be the, the all important moment that finally, you know, either uh, produces betrayal, destroys the love, changes the life of the protagonist, introduces some kind of like tragic dimension, but that is not the case in a way. And so what you have is a series of kind of like missed encounter. Even the, the ending that Duran was mentioning, that is also a missed encounter. And it's the most um, uh, unsettling, I would say, of all, because it is a, it is a, it is a carnal encounter. It is, a, it is an encounter, it's a physical encounter in which Moreau repeatedly says, I don't love you anymore. So uh, the, the, the physical encounter in a way is that, it, that you know, kind of like Mastroianni forcing him, uh, himself on her is kind of like the ultimate representation of an encounter that is actually not taking place in a way, despite all the efforts of, as Luca was saying, a man of action that thinks of himself as someone who can make things happen. Um, but in a way it's too late. And there is a sense like throughout the film that it's always too late um, for anything real, for any real encounter to actually take place. I mean, even like the industrialist with Mastroianni, I mean, they, they talk to one another, but they don't seem to really understand one another in, in one way or, or another. I think there is the sense of kind of like always kind of like a disconnection in a way. And I think, you know, visually, of course, the motif of uh, reflections, uh, reflecting surfaces, mirrors, redoubling uh, is always this kind of like relay to this uh, theme of incommunicability, alienation, uh, lack of connection that is, you know, one of the mainstays of Antonioni's cinema. Yeah, I feel like Moreau um, is not only aware of this kind of lack of connection, but has kind of um, accepted, it, accepted it. Whereas Mastroianni's character, I think, is slightly aware, maybe more so than um, he would like to admit himself, but is not willing to admit to himself that um, there, there is this kind of like impossibility of connection now. So instead he like opts to try to like artificially recreate these connections. Yeah, I wanted to uh, say a couple of things to um, add a couple of things to this. The one is, you know, in um, at that time, like the debate on the organic intellectual, it's um, it's very present. Um, so the organic intellectual mean coming from Gramsci, and um, means like an intellectual that can work within the society and and expressing a certain views and and. Uh, 
um, coming to terms with like educating the masses at a certain view, um, political view and action. And um, so it's Antonioni seems to kind of joke on that possibility with uh, uh, Mastroianni's character. It's like, what are you gonna work for a capitalist uh, or what is this an enlightened uh, capitalist that it's gonna have an intellectual working for him because so he make himself known to his working, working class like employees. Um, uh, so that's that's also like something to uh, to think about uh, because that is a debate that in Italy it's like a, a heated debate at the time. So I, lo I love the uh, the line that Jean Barros has on that um, that every millionaire wants his own uh, intellectual. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah that is a good line. That is a there are some very very good lines in the in the movie. Uh, we must say, um, but but I also just to go back a little bit to the. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention before about the connection between these two movies, it's also the fact that, of course, they're black and white. Like, this might be obvious, we haven't said it before. And one, of course, is black and white because of <laughs> uh, technological reasons. But the other one is, uh, uh, as is aesthetic reasons uh, for, for B. So, so, um, so that is also kind of, Antonioni moves on to color after this trilogy. And uh, so that's really like a, an interesting connection between these two movies, kind of like the beginning of these, uh, you know, black and white era, uh, how the, the possibility of seeing the movies in black and white and the end somehow of, of that era, so. Another thing that I think it's important to say is the fact that the, the men of action uh, that we just talked about in a way um, kind of like takes, you know, it, it becomes, uh, or it starts existing in opposition to the intellectual in later Antonioni's films. So, for instance, in uh, in Leclisse, the protagonist, played by Alain Delon, is a stockbroker. So he would be, you know, of the same ilk as the industrialist in uh, La Notte, in a way. You know, men of action uh, there as well. Uh, same thing goes for, um, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the two, the first two color films, so Red Desert, uh, Blow Up. Um, these are all like, you know, the, the, the male character there, the male protagonist, Richard Harris, is also a man of action. He's a capitalist looking for, uh, like actively looking for markets to expand its production in and so forth. Um, the photographer in Blow Up, uh, I mean, even, you know, Jack Nicholson's character in uh, The Passenger. These are all men of action in a way and all thwarted in their own way. Um, you know, I'm thinking again, like Richard Harris in Red Desert or... Uh, in, you know, uh, David Hemmings in Blow Up, they all kind of like, they, they, they're constantly on the move. They're always looking for something, constantly wandering around without being able to really latch onto anything definite. I mean, the ending of Blow Up in that sense, or even the ending of uh, The Passenger uh, would be kind of like the, the epitome of, of, of this idea. But it seems to me that the intellectual in a way becomes decoupled uh, from these other figures who may be more like creative figures or uh, you know, people who are uh, more directly involved into the, in the capitalist machine, um, but the intellectual kind of like takes a backseat, I think, after this uh, this film. I mean, it's also worth noting that if I'm not mistaken, in Leclisse, Monica Vitti ditches her boyfriend, who is a writer, to yeah, right, uh, right. spend more time with <laughs> Alain Delon, the lively you know, stockbroker. So, uh, what what do you um, think that this kind of shift occurs? Because there's like this. 
um, impossibility for like the intellectual to be authentic or to commit any kind of change. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think maybe maybe one way to think about it is the, is the the idea that for Antonioni, intellectuality to some extent takes different forms, um, and I, I I think this is certainly the case for Hemming's character in Blow Up. He sees himself as a sort of intellectual, as an artist. I mean, he does. Of course, like what he needs to do in order to, um, you know, um, to to live basically. So like fashion photography, but he also fancies himself as more kind of like an, an art photographer in a way. And this is what gets him into, uh, you know, the mystery that uh, the, the film centers around. And so, I feel like maybe the idea is that the, the intellectual kind of like transforms itself into more of a detective to some extent. And I'm thinking about again Blow Up or Jack Nicholson in, in The Passenger. Um, there is the sense of kind of like a detective style, detective story style mystery building in that the character needs to unravel um, only to then again find that there is nothing again to, to latch onto and there is no definite truth that can, you know, um, provide any kind of relief for the existential dread that seems to dominate these characters in a way. But it seems to me that, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, Mastroianni in, uh, in uh, in uh, La Notte is really kind of like the last figure that he would like immediately understand as a, an intellectual. And it's already mm -hmm. one that is like in deep crisis in a way. There's maybe another sort of hint in La Notte that, you know, would allow us to kind of um, approach this question slightly, slightly differently, which is if you remember when um, Jean Moreau and uh, Mastroianni visit their friend who's dying in the hospital, I think he's, the character's name is Tommaso, am I remembering correctly? Who's also an intellectual and a writer, who's also bemoaning the fact that he never really became a man of action, that he didn't go to a certain kind of limit with his writing, with his own sort of radicalism and so on. Um, but what we also see on the uh, on the side of his uh, bed are certain books, among which, for instance, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, a book by Bertolt Brecht, the great uh, communist uh, uh, German uh, playwright, um, who you know belongs. I mean, he was uh, he was uh, uh, belongs to a, a, a pre-war period, a period of the kind of uh, revolutionary left and revolutionary left uh, writing and art, and that was much more closely tonight connected to um, the October Revolution and the struggles uh, between fascism and communism in Europe, in Germany, in the 1920s and 30s, and a certain pre-World War II figure of radical left politics in which the figure of an intellectual or writer um, uh, 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 had a place uh, that was maybe a little more significant, a little more central, um, or at least it was possible to imagine it as, as central. Uh, the intellectual as a kind of uh, uh, organic intellectual of the masses or as a kind of vanguard uh, that's able to articulate for the masses the kind of contours of political struggle and so on, uh, which is an idea of politics and of revolution and of the role of intellectuals and writers and artists within that kind of uh, process that's very, very difficult to uh, maintain in the conditions of, you know, what Mauro earlier was describing as the kind of great big economic boom in Italy, but also in other European countries of the post-war era. So the configuration of politics, um, even left-wing politics, 
and the role of the Communist Party, which again, Mauro and Valeria can speak uh, more better, better, you know, more, more uh, in more detail to than I can. But I think that changes too. And so that's kind of one of another condition that sort of makes somebody like Mastroianni's character seem out of place. And, you know, he wants to be a radical writer with a political significance of broad public appeal and importance. And it simply doesn't work in a way anymore because that whole politics in a way is, is gone. And, um, you know, uh, worth noting and promoting that, you know, Mauro's forthcoming book deals with uh, uh, relationship of cinema and politics precisely in the moment that comes after uh, this uh, crisis and emerges in 68 and so on. So, you know, maybe, maybe he wants to say more, but I think that's a crucial dimension. Well, thank you, Luca, for that. You're welcome. Um, um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the only thing that I want to add is kind of like, you know, prompted by what Luca was saying is the fact that um, the figure of the organic intellectual that Valeria was describing before is inextricable from the organization of the party in a way, right? And this is also the way in which Gramsci conceived it. Um, now, the problem is that you find yourself in a situation, a historical situation in Italy in the early 60s, in which the Italian Communist Party is still the largest party, largest left-leaning or leftist party or communist party outside of um, in Europe, outside of the Soviet Union. And so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's got a pervasive presence in Italian territory, massive political weight, um, never went to government for um, um, a, a number of, you know, behind the curtain manipulations by other forces. But, mm -hmm. um, but it was like a, a force to be reckoned with, right? At the same time, uh, the situation in the country is also changing a little bit. And that puts the PCI, the Italian Communist Party, in a kind of like a difficult position at that point, because the most radical pushes that you see in Italian society, the, the, the strongest antagonism from the left, uh, comes not so much from uh, unions uh, or the party itself, but actually from spontaneous action organized for the most part, and this, is, this happens in the beginning of the 60s and then throughout the 60s and the 70s, uh, precisely by uh, the, the social class that Valeria was mentioning before. So uh, young, semi-literate Southern uh, people who are migrating from the South to the industrial poles in the North. So Milan, uh, certainly Turin, Genoa, uh, the area around Venice to some extent um, to find jobs. And the jobs that they were finding were uh, very low salary jobs, a very strict and rigid job market, um, the inability to actually live any meaningful life in, in a city that did not want them. This is certainly true for Turin and Milan. Um, and so, uh, you know, subject to episodes of racism basically every day. Um, and so this kind of like sense of uh, being part of the production, productive machine, but at the same time being excluded from society generated forms of antagonism that were much more radical than anything the Italian Communist Party was even dreaming of at the time. And so this is maybe one way of understanding what Luca was saying, kind of like the organic intellectual, uh, perhaps connected to the Italian Communist Party, finding itself in the rear guard at this time, uh, not being able to actually not only lead the masses to any kind of like revolutionary change, but actually not even being able to understand what is going on in the streets. Uh, in terms of like, you know, wildcat strikes, riots, and so forth. So this is the moment in which there is a radical transformation of class struggle in Italy 
that to some extent leaves the intellectual class, the intelligentsia behind a little bit, uh, especially the one that kind of like formed itself and trained itself uh, within the ranks of the Communist Party. Um, so th it is this kind of like moment of transition, which is true not only for the capitalist class and the modernization of the country, but also for the workforce in a way and, and the working class that is kind of like transforming itself and also finding new ways of struggling against domination of capital that's becoming uh, more and more brutal in a way. So um, maybe that might be the reason why um, Antonioni's films feel almost like post-political since a lot of their, um, since a lot of the, the characters in Antonioni's films are from the bourgeoisie, the intelligentsia, um, the, these kind of people. So they're, they're um, very much like disconnected from what you were saying to be the, uh, the actual like political goings on, which are like pretty much exclusively in, um, by the lower classes at, at this time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like the factory itself, which is the primary side of struggle, the factory in the streets, I would say, are the primary side of struggle, uh, of class struggle in Italy in the 60s and 70s. Um, they appear, both the streets and the, the, the factory appear in a kind of like almost a ghostly fashion in, in Antonioni. I'm thinking about Red Desert, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, in which you have like, you know, the, the, the massive industrial complex near Ravenna. Um, that's like prominently displayed, rarely explored, but prominently displayed. Um, and then you have kind of like a, a, a just a, a blip on the radar of class struggle when you have the beginning in the beginning of the film in Red Desert when you have the uh, the scab uh, getting into the, the factory uh, in a moment when the the rest of the workforce is outside striking, uh, and you see Monica Vitti kind of like she's just walking past it with her kid. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's interesting that, I mean, Antonioni certainly has, uh, you know, perceives that it, these are the places where a certain kind of like antagonism is formed, but it's not like, I, I don't think he sees that as the primary focus of his cinema uh, mm -hmm. in, in any way. I mean, Antonioni's cinema has always been to some extent a, a bourgeois cinema, which has also yep. been kind of like the, 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 the reason and the rationale behind a lot of political attacks that the cinema received through the years in the 60s and 70s as well. Uh, some of which are off target and some of which are not, uh, I would guess, I would say. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, he's, he's, I mean that's, that's, that's one of the things, right? I mean, I think you can say that Antonioni makes political cinema. It's just that his idea of politics and his way of dealing with politics uh, in relation to cinema is not the way that other filmmakers at the time uh, opted to adopt, you know, I'm thinking about Rosi, for instance, or even, you know, uh, Edio Petri, obviously, would be like the primary example. So, um, you know, there is an entire genre in Italian cinema called Cinema Politico, uh, which includes the likes of, you know, um, uh, Petri, Rosi, Vancini, um, Puccini, Montaldo, um, which is directly political, like it deals directly with questions of that are of political relevance in the historical moment uh, in which the films are made. Antonioni, I think, takes a different route, and I myself had to kind of like deal with it, you know, writing the book and kind of like rethink my own relationship with Antonioni, which I, you know, as in my early days as a young cinephile, I always hated profoundly. Um, <laughs> But then kind of like going back to it, and you, you, have to, you have to understand, I mean, you have to acknowledge that his idea of thinking about politics, his way of thinking about politics, it's certainly less direct, uh, much more oblique than any of these other directors. 
but it can still say something like extremely relevant. Um, for instance, in the you know with the figure of the housewife, which is central in, in Antonioni. I mean, think about Vitti in, in Red Desert, which is kind of like in a way a, a, a close kin to Jean Moreau in in La Notte. It's kind of like a figure that can't really adapt himself to the, the this new modern life, you know. And the result of it is this of the result of this maladjustment. It's a kind of like constant neurosis and. I mean, in the case of Red Desert, even one could say even psychosis at some point. I mean, she uh, is kind of like implied to have uh, attempted suicide. Um, and so this, this inability of the, of the housewife to kind of like adapt to the new rhythms of modern life, I think in and of itself is kind of like, if not a political statement, uh, certainly a political diagnosis, which I find very, very interesting in that sense. Definitely, yeah. And kind of going off that, I feel that um, his movies kind of portray this very like, closed world a, a um like the the, mer the modernity in his movie seems to be kind of like an end i would say whereas like there's um there's like nothing kind of after this this era that he's depicting um which is kind of like why i was thinking that um you could think of it as kind of like a post-political world at least uh in relationship to um the bourgeoisie the, the characters he's depicting in his movies I mean, just one thing that I will say is that in this sense, like Antonioni is very Marxist because on the one hand, he sees, you know, all the destruction brought about by capitalism, but at the same time, he's also like inherently fascinated with it. Mm -hmm. Like he's fascinated with this kind of like sense of progress, the sense of like, you know, production, the sense of the transformation of the, of the landscape, the power that this, you know, systems of relations has of transforming not only the landscape, but even the conception of the human itself. I think Red Desert um, is a great example of that. Yes, because I mean, Red it, it's yes, a depiction yeah. of like, you know, these like rusted old old machines and factories, but there's this kind of like fascination with yeah, it as for well. Sure. Yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, you can see an inkling of that in La Notte as well, when mm -hmm. uh, uh, Giovanni tells the industrialists, you know, uh, you're the ones who run the world now. I mean, you, you, you write with cities, you write with factories, that's how you create your stories. And this is why, in a way, the figure of the intellectual, like the one that Valeria and Luca were describing, the organic intellectual, um, uh, you know, born in after the, the, the second, you know, in the, in the first half of the 20th century is, is uh, obsolete uh, to some extent. But also just to, um, to add something to that, um, he's also fascinating. And then, you know, to extend that, um, He's also fascinated by the aesthetic potential of these of the cement of the metal of the Antonioni is also a painter is very um, it is known to have a, a specific sense of color in his in his movies and composition and is very painterly in in what he does and um, and it's as as an artist of his era is fascinated with the material that is the potential of the material that is around him and the new cities, the new buildings, um, even even the sign might, some might not agree, but they are uh, technically and aesthetically extremely fascinating for what they create in terms of landscape, how they cut the landscape, how they insert themselves in, in the natural landscape. So Antonioni, this, this is definitely something that he is absolutely capable of bringing uh, on the screen. I mean, and he is pretty radical in the Red Desert, for instance, in basically telling the spectator that, you know, nature as a concept doesn't exist anymore. 
There's no, there's no nature to speak of, right? Um, I mean, all the kind of like uh, images of quote unquote nature that we see in the film, they're all kind of like, there are other, you know, toxic dumps mm-hmm. um, uh, or uh, places that actually Antonioni, for instance, actually wanted to, to paint. So I don't, I don't know if you know this, but there is a scene in which there's kind of like, there's this massive um, ship that comes into the, the port of uh, Ravenna and you see that through the, like, um, like, a, like a trees, like a wood. And what he wanted to do was basically to uh, either use a lens to make the entire landscape gray or actually to paint all the trees gray to kind of like transform, you know, kind of like, again, giving us the sense that, you know, once industry comes in, yeah. uh, it, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't simply insert itself into the, into the landscape, but it becomes the landscape mm-hmm. in a way, kind of like doing away with any concept of, you know, untouched nature or even like pockets of untouched nature that we might have. Which is a totally fake concept today that it died in at the end of the 19th century. Not, not to be pessimistic, but there's, there's nothing. We, we started to emphasize that nature exactly when we didn't have it anymore. And including the, the United States, which have a, a, an incredible rhetoric on nature, but only 2% of forests on the on this territory is actually original. Well, um, on that on that positive note, um, <laughs> uh, we killed nature. <laughs> we killed nature. Um, I was I was wondering um, just for the last last few minutes, uh, going back to the festival. Um, now that the uh, the first event is over, um, just general thoughts. How did it go? How is the attendance like? Um, anything you've learned that to maybe carry over to the next next few events yeah we need to plan it now <laughs> we need to start planning now <laughs> uh there is a lot i uh, no we were very happy with the uh with the event uh, um he did what we intended it, um to uh to be doing uh so in terms of like learning curve on uh what it's possible where when we can bring it um, how we can develop the, um, the next events. And um, uh, there was a good student participation. And um, so it's, it's all good. And uh, I think we're, we're ready to, um, to start thinking um, about the next one. That's great. I'm, I'm very excited for that. And is there um, any hints you might give us as to what the, uh, the next festival might pertain? Yeah, so the idea is to do um, for for the next, let's say, teaser, which is going to be a similar format as this one, uh, we would like to do something on Pasolini, um, uh, you know, the centennial of, of his birth. And um, um, so we, and, and you know, the, the, the Cineteca in Bologna has a, a pretty, pretty extensive catalog of um, Pasolini uh, works. So... Um, so we would certainly like to do uh, maybe one Pasolini for the sound and then find something for the silent that could, that could kind of like go well and, uh, um, you know, provide a, a, a nice match, um, curatorial match with, uh, with Pasolini. But the idea is to do something kind of like take advantage of this uh, anniversaries in a way um, to make it even more relevant uh, to some extent. And then, I mean, we'll see what happens with the with the actual festival, the four-day event in the spring of 2023. But we would like to have a certain kind of like an organic structure to it in the sense of like maybe an overarching theme 
uh, that can bring together the different films and kind of like possibly foster interesting conversations about the, the films. Uh, we haven't decided what the theme is going to be yet, but uh, we, we hope we'll be able to bring in some collaboration from uh, other faculty in uh, the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultures and maybe do something that's, uh, you know, not only Italian, but also uh, can showcase other national cinemas uh, as well. Very great. I mean, if you're doing Pasolini, you've certainly got my ticket. I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> that's that's why we're doing it because we, we know you like it thank you thank you thank you very much we are counting on you duran we're counting on you and the cinephile new wave uh, we will um get it out to our, our 10 listeners so that they'll all be able to attend <laughs> <laughs> well um thank you very much all of you for uh for joining me um this was this was a, a pleasure um and i'm really looking forward to uh the future events Thank you, Duran. Thank you, so Duran. Delightful. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Bye.